Uh, good evening. Welcome to this evening's meeting of the Aristotelian Society. It's a great pleasure to welcome Fiona Lee, who studied for her PhD at Monash and was appointed to a lectureship at UCL in 2009. Her research interests focus on ancient philosophy and metaphysics, but they also include virtue ethics and philosophy of education. She's published a number of papers on the sophist, and she's going to speak to us this evening on restless forms and changeless causes. Thank you. Thanks very much, Marie, and uh, thank you also to the organisers of the Aristotelian Society for inviting me to speak to you today. I'm really thrilled to be here. Um, so we have technical difficulties. I've got a PowerPoint slideshow, but none of you can see it. So I'm going to sort of be reading off my little PowerPoint slideshow here, uh, and I trust that everyone's got a handout. The handout should suffice in the absence of the, of the slideshow. Okay, so it's very widely held that forms either rest or change or both in Plato's later dialogue, The Sophist. This received view, however, is false. There is no positive evidence for it in the dialogue, and indeed there are a number of passages that individually suggest otherwise and collectively, I think, show otherwise. Moreover, um, Plato nowhere endorses the claim in the dialogue that forms undergo or suffer a special kind of change, Cambridge change, um, in coming to be known by a knower, by the knowing mind. Um, however, he did, I'm going to argue, isolate a conception of change, funny conception of change, which we nowadays refer to as mere Cambridge change in the dialogue, only to firmly reject it as a case of genuine change. Forms don't change or rest in Plato's later dialogue, The Sophist, for a good reason, for a principled reason, and that reason is that forms are seen clearly by him as purely intelligible entities, entities that are abstract in just that sense. And as such, they're just not the sorts of things that are able to undergo change or rest. At the same time, as I've recently argued elsewhere, Plato appears to continue in our dialogue to treat forms as causes, as he did in the Phaedo and the Timaeus. Now, I suspect that, in line with the received opinion that forms either rest or move, or perhaps both, in the sophist, um, Plato's view, as for, view of forms as causes can be regarded as a certain sort of forgivable error. The thought would be, that Plato had a kind of thingy view of his forms. He thought of forms as being um, substantial in a certain sort of sense. These substantive ent entities are immutable and at rest. They possibly also undergo change. And they loom large in the ontology as the sorts of things that are identifiable as causes, the thing responsible in a certain state of affairs. So, as Socrates says in the Phaedo, um, if anything is beautiful, besides the form of beauty itself, it is so for no other reason than that it participates or shares in the form of beauty. So the form of beauty is identified as the cause, the thing responsible for, in this case, something being beautiful. But it's only because, so this thought goes, it's only because Plato didn't quite see that it was a category mistake to conceive of his forms substantively that he thought of them as being at rest and possibly changing too and so too identified them as causes, since only thus, if he thought of them as kind of things, not quite outside time and space, could he have thought of them as the sorts of things capable of undergoing change and rest and subject to uh, causal relations. Against this view, I'm going to argue that Plato was in no way confused about or only dimly perceived the nature of forms in the dialogue The Sophist. He saw them clearly as incapable of change or rest, being purely intelligible or abstract entities, and at the same time as fulfilling a causal role, so I'm going to argue today. But that immediately raises a question, a question I want to go some way in this paper towards answering. How could Plato have plausibly identified purely intelligible entities' forms as causes? One initially tempting response to this view um, that I'm going to want to reject is that Plato had a kind of dispositionalist or proto-dispositionalist conception of his forms in thinking of them as causes. A more promising route, I'm going to suggest, is that causation incorporates 
for Plato, a notion of structuring. This notion of structuring allows him to nominate unchanging, purely intelligible forms as causes that structure their participants and act on them in that way, and in that way make them precisely what they are. So um, my paper has four parts. In the first part, I'm going to show you the textual evidence for the claim that forms neither rest nor move in the sophist. In the second part, I'm going to discuss the Friends of Forms and Cambridge change. In the third part, I'm going to um, present you with a reason why forms neither change nor rest that I take to come from the sophist, the principal reason I mentioned earlier. And in the fourth and final section, I'm going to talk about platonic causation, dispositionalism, and try and fill out this notion of structuring that I've just introduced. The first section where I try and, uh, where I set out the evidence for the claim that forms neither change nor rest in the sophist is, I take it, the least controversial uh, part of my paper today. And I'm going to go through it reasonably quickly. It's a shame in a way that you can't see the slides because I'm going to go through it kind of quickly. Um, but of course, if anyone's got any questions about this part of the paper, we can talk about it later. So one striking feature of the dialogue, the sophist, is that in it we find that Plato's forms participate in one another. They're explicitly said to engage in participation relations with one another, and this is new and surprising for Plato. There are five greatest kinds that dominate the second half of the dialogue from roughly 250 to 259. These five greatest kinds or forms are the form of change, the form of rest, the form of being, the form of sameness, and the form of difference. And there these forms are such, we find out, at length and sometimes uh, to the point of tedium, that these forms participate in one another. But they don't all participate in one another. Each of the five forms possess three logical properties. They possess the properties of, firstly, being a being, secondly, being the same as itself, and thirdly, the property of being different from each of the other of the five greatest kinds. Now, these five greatest kinds possess these properties as attributes as a result of participating in the relevant form. So each, each form gets to be self-identical through participating in the form of the same. Uh, so, in brief, the main evidence for the view that all forms share in the, the same and thereby get to be self-identical uh, is given at 256a, where the stranger says that everything shares in the same. Um, the different is said to be something that change, the form change shares in, um, at 255e and at other places in the dialogue. And the different is said to be a form that goes through all the other five forms, all the other four forms of the greatest kinds. So there are two ways in which the stranger says a form participates in another form. He can say it straightforwardly, a form participates in another form, or he can make the converse claim that a form goes through the others, meaning that all the others participate in it. The claim that all the five greatest kinds share in being uh, comes in different bits. We get various claims um, to the effect that the forms change and the form rest share in being. Um, the earliest one that I found is at 250b, but we get that claim several times in the dialogue. Difference is said to share in being at 259, and as a result of this sharing, difference is said to be, to have the property of being, or being a being, however you want to say that in English. There's no explicit claim in the dialogue that uh, sameness shares in being, or that being shares in being, self-participates, but we do get the claim that... Uh, all the kinds share in being. In particular, we get the claim that all the kinds share metekein in being, and so are beings, ainai ta onta, at 256e. And we get the further claim a little later in the dialogue that being goes through all, the converse of the claim that things share in being. And it's clear that the kind of participation that forms um, engage in when they're relating to each other this way is exactly the same relation that sensible objects in middle period dialogues um, are in when they participate in forms. So just as Helen of Troy is beautiful in virtue of participation in the form of beauty, so too the form change gets to be the same as itself 
through participation in the form sameness in relation to itself. Interestingly, and finally, um, each of the five kinds get to have these uh, three logical properties as attributes purely and solely as a result of participation in the relevant forms. So he says in the case of participation in difference that it's true that for each of the five greatest kinds, each of them is different as a result of participation in the difference and not as a result of possessing the nature that each of them possesses. So it's purely and simply in terms of participation that even forms have the properties that they possess, possess certain properties as an attribute. Now, no forms are said to share in change or share in rest in this section of the dialogue. And indeed, change and rest are not said to go through any of the other forms. Finally, change and rest are said several times in the dialogue explicitly not to share in one another. So at 2.52, in response to a question whether all things or all forms share in one another or no forms share in one another or maybe some do and some don't, um, the stranger has asked the young man he's talking to, Theotetus, um, well, perhaps all forms do share in one another. All, all kinds do share in one another. And Theotetus says, no, that can't be. It's impossible. Think of rest and change. If they were to come to be in one another, he says, change itself would be absolutely at rest and rest itself would be changing. So that's the first time and the clearest time uh, we have the claim that change and rest don't share in one another. So I think it's a striking, deliberate, telling omission in the dialogue that none of these five greatest kinds share in change or in rest. There's something going on here because in this dialogue, unlike others, Plato is explicitly focusing on the relations of participation between forms. He's only concerned with five greatest kinds, two of which are change and rest. And no forms are said to share in them. They're not said to go through anything else. And they're explicitly said not to share in one another. So I submit that if Plato thought at the time of writing this dialogue that forms shared in either change or rest, and thereby either changed, had the properties of changing or being at rest, this is the place for him to say so. And he conspicuously doesn't. So, that was quick, I know. But section two, Friends of the Forms and Cambridge Change. Contrary to the claim I've just made, that forms neither change nor rest in the dialogue, some people have thought that, in fact, forms enjoy a special kind of change in the dialogue, that they undergo a kind of change we nowadays refer to as mere Cambridge change when they come to be known by the knowing mind. So what do I mean by Cambridge change? Well, for the purposes of the talk today, I'm going to take it that Cambridge change is alteration over time in the totality of statements that truly apply to the subject. Look at that, who made it work? How fabulous. I've no idea why it's not bright, but somebody probably could come and make it bright. I thought he was giving up too, <laughs> hopeless case. So can you read that? Or is it a bit dark? No, okay, you can read that, terrific. It seems to be brightening as we go. All right, so I'm taking Cambridge change to be an alteration in the total set of statements that are true about a subject, truly apply to a subject over time. All change is Cambridge change. So a cha Cambridge change occurs, for example, when Luca, my little nephew Luca, comes to know the form courage. Now he did come to know the form courage because he was terrified of these giant cockroaches in Queensland in Australia where we're all from um, when he was a little boy. He was terrified of these things but now he's brave in respect of them. And he's come to know, let's say, the form courage. He's, he's quite a bit older than he was when he was scared of them. Um, in coming to know the form courage, he now possesses the property, let's say, of being brave. So Luke is now a brave little boy, or not so little boy. Um, ordinary change, I want to take it as a term that expresses um, the sort of object language concept of change, which is restricted to an alteration in the subject's uh, monadic or intrinsic or at least non-relational properties, right? 
So Luca coming to have the property of being brave represents such a change. That's a case of ordinary change. But that's only one case of Cambridge change. Mere Cambridge change occurs in the absence of an alteration in the subject's non-relational, monadical, intrinsic properties. So, um, per impossible for Plato, if it could be the case that Luca could come to know, intellectually grasp the form of courage, perhaps by, um, I don't know, reading some Plato or something, without in fact becoming brave, that's what Plato wouldn't accept, but say Luca could come to have a, a mere intellectual grasp of the form of courage. That would be a case of mere Cambridge change. A change has taken place in Luca, but importantly, a change has taken place, a mere Cambridge change, um, in the case of the form courage. Why? Well, before Luca came to know the form, uh, before that time, courage wasn't known by Luca. But now it's true that the form courage is known by Luca, according to my example. So that's what I mean by mere Cambridge change for the purposes of today. Right, so back to the friends of the forms. The stranger has a fictional debate with these people, mysterious people, called the friends of the forms. And I'm not going to go through all the details today. The debate begins with the stranger offering these mysterious friends of the forms a definition of being. Um, the definition of being offered is that uh, whatever has the power to act on something or be affected by something gets to count as one of the beings. Now the count as one of the beings. Now the friends reject this definition of being straight away. They reject it because according to them, uh, in the, according to the metaphysical picture that they have, there are two realms uh, in their ontology. In the first realm, we have the realm of being. And in that realm, crucially, are forms. Um, things in the realm of uh, being are such that they cannot suffer um, to be affected and they can't act on other things. The things in the realm of being are at rest. But there are also things in the realm of becoming, according to the friends. These are the things that we experience with our senses. And things in the realm of becoming can act on things and be affected. Things in the realm of becoming change. So we have things in the realm of being at rest, things in the realm of becoming which change. So they deny, of course, that the mark of being is the ability to act or be affected, since that corresponds to the realm of becoming. In the course of this rejection, they also deny that the relation between the knowing mind and what is known is a relation of action and affection. They deny that this is a case of something acting on something else and something being affected. They deny it because, they say, if knowing affected the object of knowledge, if knowing affected what is known, then what is known would thereby be changed. But, of course, that's impossible for what's at rest and forms, being the paradigmatic case of the object of knowledge, are what's known and they're at rest. Now, there's a discussion that ensues um, with the stranger, the Eliotic stranger and the friends of the forms. And this is the bit I'm not going to go through with you in any detail. <sighs> okay, no thank you. Uh, <laughs> and uh, So in this uh, discussion that ensues, the friends of forms end up with a problem. They end up agreeing that being and the all, being in the cosmos, to'on kai to pan, encompasses what changes and the changeless. So in being is stuff that changes. In the realm of being now, they've been forced to admit is stuff that changes. So they no longer can stick to their principled reason for rejecting the definition or mark of being offered to them before. The reason for rejecting it was that whatever is in the realm of being can't change. Now, they're silenced at this point, and we don't hear any more from the friends of the forms for the rest of the dialogue. Now, the proponent of, the came, of what I'm going to call the Cambridge change reading um, reads this encounter with the friends of the forms in a very particular way. The bottom line, of course, is that Plato wants us to see that forms are changed in being known. They're changed in a special sense. They're changed in the sense um, of mere Cambridge change. Now, this is despite the fact that there is no claim put forward in the dialogue 
that forms are changed in being known. There's no claim endorsed by the stranger or indeed even by the friends of the forms. So the Cambridge change proponent um, has a lot of work to do. Um, but they, pe such people have claimed that the friends are basically left able to see at the end of the debate with the stranger, even though they're silenced, they're left able to see on their own, in their own time, that forms suffer mere Cambridge change in being known. But this is okay because this is compatible, mere Cambridge change is compatible with uh, the forms remaining at rest and not undergoing ordinary change. They had assumed, of course, that all change was ordinary change, and that's the lesson for them to learn, that forms can suffer Cambridge change. Now, Leslie Brown has argued against a certain reading of the debate with the Friends of Forms. Her target isn't uh, Cambridge change proponents in particular. Um, her target is really anybody who thinks that Plato's point is that forms undergo change of any sort in being known. So it's quite like Cambridge change, but she doesn't say that that's her explicit target. So perhaps uh, my view that forms don't undergo change can be defended, if you like, by Leslie's paper suggesting that these people are wrong. So against the change reading that is in Leslie's science, against the change reading, she uh, puts forward an argument that has uh, two parts or two planks. The first plank is to, first of all, notice that the change reading assumes a broad notion of being affected. This broad notion of being affected is such that things can count as being affected when they come to be known. But Brown says this can't be, this broad conception of affection can't be the notion of being affected that's at play in the dialogue. Because before the debate with the Friends of the Forms, the stranger's been talking to these chaps called giants, and they've accepted this notion of being affected, and they're materialists, and they would never have accepted a conception of being affected that's broad enough to include cases of being known. So the change reading is wrong. The second plank to her argument um, consists in first pointing out that according to the change reading, forms are, are immutable and yet they suffer this special sort of change, mere <coughs> Cambridge change I'm calling it. So the second plank to her argument is uh, really consists in her pointing out that at a crucial point at 249b, when the stranger's talking to the friends and says that the objects of intelligence or noose are immutable in the sense that they remain the same in the same way and in the same respects and they're at rest, he doesn't qualify that statement. If Plato had in mind that forms were immutable but in a qualified sense of also undergoing Cambridge change, he would have qualified that statement and he doesn't. Now, Although I find Brown's reading really attractive, and obviously <laughs> I agree with her conclusion, it seems to me that the Cambridge change component, uh, proponent, at any rate, not that that's explicitly her target, but the Cambridge change proponent could uh, reject her argument. Against plank one, that the notion of affecting is too broad, um, to be the notion of affecting that's at play in the dialogue. I think the proponent of Cambridge change can point out that it's possible that the stranger, the Eliadic stranger, had a notion of Cambridge change in mind all along. Now, the stranger knows that the giants are going to just assume that all change is ordinary change. And that's all the stranger actually needs for his purposes in talking to the giants once they accept the notion of ordinary change that comes along, um, if you like, uh, with a definition, he gets them into a confusion, which is his goal with them. But for all that, the notion of change he has in mind could be this broad conception of Cambridge change, such that the notion of affecting in play is the broad notion, which notion gets refined a little later on in the next encounter, namely the encounter with the Friends of Forms. Against the second plank of Brown's argument, the Cambridge change component can say, well, it's true that the stranger says that the objects of intelligence of noose are immutable, 
and remain the same in the same way and so on and are at rest. But there's no reason for him to qualify that claim if he's got Cam mere Cambridge change in mind for forms because undergoing and suffering mere Cambridge change in the case of forms is compatible with being at rest and so being immutable in exactly the sense mentioned at 249b. So her, her argument against the Cambridge change component isn't decisive. Fortunately, I think we can supplement um, Brown's argument in a way that does tell against the Cambridge change um, reading in the following way. Just after, um, uh, at the close of the debate with the Friends of the Forms and indeed the Giants, at the close of the Gigantomachia, um, the stranger concludes, as I've mentioned, that being and the all, being and the universe, encompasses what changes and the changeless. It's clear from what's been said just prior to it that the term here, changeless, must refer to the objects of noose, the objects of the knowing mind, i.e. to forms. So forms here are included in being in the universe as things that are changeless. Now, if Plato thought that, and his main point, the main point of this debate with the friends of the forms, was to um, get the reader to understand that forms are immutable in a certain sense, but they suffer change, a very special sort of change, Cambridge change, this is the point for him to say something about it, not to say... Um, to give us a statement in which clearly what's changeless refers to forms. So there's no statement in the dialogue that forms undergo change, any sort of change, let alone a special sort of change in coming to be known. And the Cambridge change reading of the dialogue, I think, is dealt a fairly severe blow um, insofar as forms are referred to without qualification as changeless at the end of the debate. So what's the point of the debate with the friends? You just might be wondering. So I thought I would say, I think that the point is a reasonably straightforward one. And in this, I think Leslie Brown and I agree. Um, the knowing mind undergoes change when it comes to know something new. So souls and noose undergo and suffer change. But according to the friends of the forms, the knowing mind is in a certain sort of connection or communion with the object of knowledge. And for the friends, these are beings par excellence. These are forms. So something in the realm of being, according to the friends, intelligence or the knowing mind, undergoes change whenever somebody learns something, whenever somebody comes to know a form in particular. Um, so being now incorporates everything. Why? Because the principled reason the friends had for, um, for denying that the realm of being encompassed anything more than forms and the knowing mind was just that being couldn't incorporate anything that changes. So by the friend's lights, being has become much larger. The realm of being has become much larger. And that's, I think, a hugely significant result for understanding Plato's metaphysics. So I've said that forms don't change. They don't undergo change or suffer change, um, including Cambridge change. But it's interesting and perhaps surprising, right, to note that here in the dialogue, if I'm right, Plato has isolated a kind of change that we nowadays refer to as mere Cambridge change. He sees that someone might think that the knowing mind and the object of knowledge are in a certain sort of relation whereby one changes the other, and in particular that the object of knowledge is changed. But he also clearly rejects this candidate for change as being a genuine case of change. Finally, the last thing I want to say about the Friends of the Forms. At the conclusion of this debate with the Friends of the Forms, it's important to note, I think, that the stranger says that being and the all, being in the universe, encompasses what changes and the changeless. He could have said that being and the all encompasses what changes and what, it's, what is at rest, but he doesn't, and I think that's really interesting. It's really interesting because from the point of view of form theory, all this says is that being incorporates things that participate in the form change, and being also, the cosmos also includes or incorporates things that don't participate in the form change. It doesn't follow on Plato's metaphysics that if something 
fails to participate in a form, that it automatically thereby participates in another form, perhaps an opposite form or something. That's just not a, an axiom of Plato's form theory. So here we have the idea that some, the universe includes some things that participate in the form change and some things that don't. And that, of course, is consistent with the idea that there's a bunch of things that don't share in either change or rest forms, which I maintain neither change nor rest in the dialogue. So now my third section. We come now to the, uh, the principal reason I think Plato has for the view that forms neither change nor rest. This reason is found uh, presented in an argument that comes just after the debate with the Friends of the Forms and before the section concerning the five greatest kinds where we get the explicit, perhaps a little tedious, details of the way that forms participate in one another, where we don't find anything sharing in rest and change. So here in this little argument, um, we have three of uh, the forms that will be the greatest, three of the five greatest kinds under discussion, change, rest and being. I'm going to argue that the stranger suggests that since forms are purely intelligible objects, as we might say non-spatio-temporal, they're not susceptible to either change or rest. They begin this passage with a puzzle or an aporia. If the universe encompasses what changes in the changeless, which they've just concluded um, at the end of the debate with the friends, if the universe incorporates what changes and the changeless, perhaps without realising it, their account of being that they've been developing thus far is really a kind of dualist ontology. And they said earlier on in the dialogue that uh, dualist ontologies ought to be uh, rejected. So that's the aporia uh, they start out with. And in this passage, right from the beginning at 250A, the stranger um, shifts in his talk in a significant way. He shifts of talking about stuff or things that change and things that don't change, the changeless, to talking about change being rest um, as entities in their own right, as subjects of um, attributive statements. Now, as I read it, uh, this argument from 250A to E, Plato pursues through the stranger two different claims consecutively, and they slightly overlap as well. The first claim um, is the anti-dualist claim. This is uh, a claim that he wants to argue for, that there's a third thing alongside change and rest. This thing is called being, and uh, so the account that they're developing isn't a dualist ontology. The second claim, the one I'm interested in today, which I've labelled B, is that the form being, and indeed all the three entities under discussion, being, change and rest, are purely intelligible beings, and so neither change nor rest. And I think I'm going to argue anyway that this is shown by pointing to the fact that one has access to this entity, being and the other entities, with the, with the soul alone. And I think that this claim B is expressed in the conclusion um, one of the conclusions offered towards the end of the argument that being of its nature neither changes nor rests. Okay, so the anti-dualist clarification, the first claim he pursues. Um, I'm just going to run through it and I'm not going to defend it at all. Um, he, he, they begin from the fact that change is and the fact that rest is and the fact that they both are. And the stranger says that they're not asserting when they make these statements um, by way of the predicate is or are, that either change and rest are changing or that change and rest are resting. So the common property signified by this predicate is or are is therefore a distinct property, distinct from either the property of um, changing or being at rest. Um, and so this property considered as an entity in its own right being is something that change or rest commune or participate, commune with or participate in. And as a result of this communion, they are each and both said to be. So there's three distinct entities and the claim isn't dualist. Now I have no interest at all in discussing the merits of this argument because it uh, is uh, really difficult 
and uh, it's not germane to my paper at all. So I'm just going to scoot right over it. What I am interested in is the second claim, B, that the three entities, being, change and rest, are purely intelligible. So I think that the stranger draws Theotetus's attention to the fact that these, um, explicitly draws Theotetus's attention to the fact that these entities are accessible to the mind alone at 250b8 and following. I've put this passage on the second page of your handout um, in translation but also in Greek for those of you who want to look at the Greek. Um, there we get the suggestion that this entity uh, being is one that Theotetus grasps with his soul and he grasps it when he contemplates or looks at if you like, with his soul, a particular metaphysical state affairs, metaphysical state of affairs, the state of affairs that uh, makes it true that rest is and change is and that they both are. Theotetus, the young man, sees and grasps that they, change and rest, commune somehow with being, has a share in them, and as a result, each of them gets to be. And, of course, we know um, from the previous day's conversation in the Theotetus which is dramatic fiction of which is set the day before, um, that Theotetus knows that the soul on its own has access to certain properties considered as things with natures on its own. Now, what follows from that? That he can grasp and see these things with his mind alone. Saying what being, change and rest are and what their relations between <laughs> one another are, is a matter clearly not to be settled um, by the exercise of our senses. It's rather a matter to be contemplated and decided upon by the soul, by the mind alone. So these objects, according to the stranger, according to Plato in the dialogue, these objects are what they are and bear certain relations to one another and can be represented as such independently of any objects, sensible or otherwise indeed, that possess these corresponding properties as attributes. In other words, they're purely intelligible entities and abstract in that sense and only in that sense. And we might call them non-spatio-temporal. Non these things are the sorts of things that are not able to change or rest, being purely intelligible entities. And that's the insight. Indeed, the stranger insists that it does follow, note the use of ara, that of its nature, thusis, being neither changes nor rests. Now, the, the passage from 250a to e ends in another puzzle, ends in a second aporia. And in the language used to deliver the second puzzle with which the dialogue ends, I think we get even uh, further evidence that Plato wants us to see that these entities, his forms, are purely intelligible in the sense described. He says rather dramatically, the stranger says rather dramatically to the young Theotetus, but to what place will a person turn his mind when it appears that we have this entity being that's outside change and rest? So the use of these terms place, turning, appearing, outside, fairly spatial metaphors, but in the context of intellectual grasping, I think encourages Theotetus and, of course, the reader to think of these entities being change and rest as entities that are standing alongside one another in a purely conceptual space. Um, now, the aporia that the, that the passage ends in is how can this be? How can being be outside of change and rest? How is it possible that what doesn't change is not at rest and vice versa? <coughs> this suggests a kind of principle right? The principle being suggested is that if something doesn't change, then it's at rest. And if something doesn't rest, then it's changing. And that's it. And of course, this principle um, lands them in a puzzle, an aporia, given that being seems to be outside of change or rest. So I think we're halfway through resolving the aporia, this second aporia, um, by um, paying attention to the strangers drawing our attention to the purely intellectual status of forms. The rest of the way, uh, we can go towards 
dissolving the aporia by noticing something about the status of this principle, this principle that what doesn't change is at rest and vice versa. This principle is only stated. It's not argued for anywhere in the dialogue. It's just an assumption, an assumption that's giving us a lot of trouble. So the suggestion I submit is that we ought to reject this assumption. Indeed, we've got good reason for rejecting it now that we've considered that some entities are purely intelligible and just not the sorts of things that can undergo change or rest, we have a good reason for rejecting the assumption as true. And that's what I suggest uh, that Plato is doing here. He's delivering the second apparatus at the close of this passage alongside the means for its solution. So that's the principal reason why forms neither change nor rest in the dialogue. So I've argued elsewhere, as I said earlier, that Plato continues in the sophist to think of forms as causes, as things that are responsible uh, for things being, their participants being, the way that they are. And it follows from what I've been saying that forms are changeless causes. So Plato's very clear that forms don't suffer change or rest, but still they're causes. Now, of course, the idea that a cause cannot change is the sorts of thing that just isn't able, under any circumstances, to change, sounds odd to contemporary philosophical ears. I suppose for the most part, causes are still regarded as events which undergo change, but even when they're not regarded uh, as, even where a cause is not identified with an event, perhaps in a state of affairs where we take it that there is a cause, but there is no event, like two playing cards eternally supporting each other, standing up. Um, then cause is still going to be understood um, via facts, physical facts, to do with physical exceptionless laws of nature and probably an account of material composition from the science of the day. But forms aren't susceptible to that sort of analysis. According to the view I've been arguing for, the anti-thingy view, forms are purely intelligible entities, just not the sort of things that uh, could suffer change or rest. So what kind of things could forms be so that uh, Plato could have thought of them as causes? What conception of form could he have had um, in order to plausibly think of them as causes? Well, you might think that forms are powers. A lot of work, recent work in uh, Platonic metaphysics uh, has been going on and really focusing on the centrality of the idea of power in the conception of Plato's forms. So no one to my knowledge has said that forms are nothing but powers, but people um, are asking this question. So if they're powers, maybe they're dispositions. And if they're dispositions as well as causes, maybe Plato had in mind something similar to what the contemporary dispositionalists have in mind in nominating a disposition as a cause. So for example, um, consider a fragile vase. Um, the vase has this fragile disposition and the disposition is, according to some people, identified as the cause of its shattering when it does so shatter, perhaps as a result of nearby heavy footfall. And of course, a disposition is a sort of thing that need not itself undergo change when acting and operating as a cause. It can, but it need not. So another example would be perhaps a really um, aggressive, warmongering city-state. The disposition of this city-state, the aggressive, warmongering disposition, can be identified as the cause of the war without that disposition itself undergoing any change but remaining stable through time. So maybe Plato's forms are like this. Well, I don't think they can be like that, basically. Forms can't be proto-dispositions or dispositions at all in the relevant sense. Think about the vase again. Its property of being fragile is a property that it possesses as an attribute and it's identified as the cause of the shattering. So the property attribute in that scenario is identified as the cause. But for Plato, something like the vase possessing a property as an attribute is a case whereby a form has acted as a cause on the participant. So the property attribute in the platonic causal relation is the effect, it's not the cause. Um, so for that reason, 
I don't think the dispositionalist suggestion, although tempting, and I got excited about it when I first thought of it, um, I don't think it can be right. So how to understand forms as changeless causes? Well, I thought it would be fun to kind of borrow or steal, perhaps, make use of the notion of manifesting or realising that's used in this dispositionalist literature because it seems to track a causal relation. And the following is uh, what I've come up with. Perhaps for Plato, what is manifested or realised when a form acts on a participant via participation is structure. Maybe structure is what gets manifested or realised. And by structure, I've got in mind intelligible structure that belongs to the form, by Plato's lights, as its nature. So, for example, I believe, although plenty of people, including some in this room, don't believe, that uh, Plato defines uh, the property justice in a particular way in the Republic. So, just for the sake of argument, let it be that justice, the form justice, encodes a certain structure such that whatever is just uh, enjoys a certain harmony between each of the three parts doing their own job, forming their own ergon. Now, that structure, a purely intelligible thing, a formula or a blueprint, if you like, that structure is then manifested or realised when things participate in the form. It's manifested or realised in just people or in just cities when their parts are so ordered. So forms in that way structure their participants. So that's the suggestion. That's kind of the idea. Now, I'm not sure if I got a show of hands how many would say that they are convinced, right? And one of the reasons that you might not be convinced is that you might think here what we have is something akin to what Jonathan Lear called a Molière explanation. So say that you want something explained. You're going to be deeply dissatisfied if somebody just re-describes the very thing to be explained, even if it's re-described more informatively. Of course, the, the example from his, um, from his work, Le Manade Maginaire, is not informative. We have a very pompous doctor who takes himself seriously. He's asked why the sleeping uh, draft has the power to make one sleep. He replies, very seriously and sternly, um, because it has a dormitive virtue. That's not even informative. But the problem is that he's just re-described the very thing to be explained. And you might think that uh, the suggestion of forms as um, understood in terms of intelligible structures belonging to them as nature and these things getting manifested, you might think that that's a fancy way, right, of doing the same thing. In the case, say, again, contrary to the facts, of Alcibiades being just, if Plato's saying that the cause of Alcibiades being just is simply that he manifests or realises the property of being just, then perhaps he's doing something similar um, to uh, the doctor in Moliere's work. In other words, perhaps all Plato's doing is re-describing the effect and pointing to it and saying, cause. And if he's doing that, then Plato's not just failing to offer anything even vaguely plausible. He seems to be confusing cause with effect. Now, if that's what Plato was saying, that might be right, but I don't think that is, in fact, what Plato is saying. <coughs> the cause, according to Plato, is a form, and the form is a numerically distinct, ontologically separate and independent entity from any of the things that participate in the form. So Alcibiades gets to be just, he would get to be just if only he had participated in the form of justice, um, in such a way that, according to the view I'm suggesting, he manifests or realises a certain kind of structure in his soul, but nonetheless he remains distinct from the thing that's caused that by Plato's lights. Now, you might not be convinced um, about what Plato is nominating as the cause in this case, the form of justice, but I think it's important to note that he hasn't confused cause and effect. He understands that much, at least, about the distinction between the two and the roles that they play. So I just want to uh, say a little more about the suggested proposal, hopefully having um, uh, convinced you that at least he's not confusing the role of cause and effect. 
The cause, according to Plato, is a form, and the effect is the participant's possession of a property as an attribute. It's in virtue of the intelligible structure belonging to the form as its nature that it has the power, this causal power, to act as a structuring cause. I furthermore want to suggest that the intelligible structure is not identical to Plato, according to Plato, to any particular case of conformity to that structure. To be really clear, I want to claim that for Plato there are no tokens of structure. There are just cases of conformity to a structure. Participants in a form exhibit structure in that sense and in that sense only, and thereby possess properties as attributes. <coughs> so in conclusion, of the five greatest kinds in the sophist, only change and rest are conspicuously not mentioned as forms in which other forms participate. While all five Magistagene clearly are said uh, to share in being, sameness and difference. Moreover, change and rest are declared several times by the stranger not to share in one another. And the reason for this, I've argued, is that in this dialogue, the sophist, Plato clearly understood his forms to be purely intelligible, not in any way physical, perceptible entities. And to suppose such things to be vulnerable to relations of change and capable of being in states of rest would be, he saw for the first time in the history of Western philosophy, to make a category mistake. I've also argued that Plato was perhaps surprisingly alive to the conception of change nowadays known as mere Cambridge change. He nonetheless rejected this purported kind of change as genuine change, consistent with his view that only things uh, that are physical, perceptible things, things we might say in time and space, uh, are subject to change and rest. Intelligible and changeless forms are, however, treated as causes in the sophist. A form is that which is responsible for its participants bearing the relevant property as an attribute. Since a form is purely intelligible, and in this sense abstract, it's not possible for it to undergo change. Indeed, you might think it had better not be capable of change if it is to constitute the single cause by encoding the single structure to which its many participants conform and are thereby made to be just what they are. Thank you. <laughs>